tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Lucy Autry Wilson, who was the first permanent employee of Lucasfilm, and who then rose through the ranks to eventually become the director of publishing. Every author I've interviewed has such incredible things to say about Mrs. Wilson, and it was such a real joy to get to talk to her, ranging from Shadows of the Empire to the New Jedi Order, and so many more. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 127, Lucy Autry Wilson. I'd love to start where a love of words and books first came from for you, early childhood. That's easy. My parents were both big readers and artists, and there was no television in our house. I never had a TV till I graduated college. It was all about reading. I loved reading. Getting my bookmobile library card was the most exciting thing in the world. So, And then I majored in English literature in college, too. What were some of your favorite early childhood inspirations or, or writers or, or books? Really early. I remember reading the biography of Helen Keller which I never known anybody who was deaf. I even learned, you know, I can't do it anymore, how to do sign language from her books. I used to practice it all the time. And I read the Mary Ingalls um, series, Little House on the Prairie. I think because my relative, my family goes all the way back to, we didn't come over on the Mayflower, but we came over right soon after that. They were a lot of pioneer kind of, I, I like that. And I grew up in California, so it's just kind of about being independent, being a pioneer. Speaking of being a pioneer in the sense, I'd love to kind of trace your journey to Lucasfilm. And of course, you end up being the first permanent employee of, of a very fledgling early Lucasfilm. How did you first get involved with them back in, I think, 1974? I lived in Europe for two years because I went there my junior year abroad, and then I went back, and then I realized I was didn't want to live there forever. And I was working at Scripps, and I had I was partying all the time, and I met my future husband, and I realized I was going to have to work for a living, get serious at some point. I thought I needed to get away from San Diego, which was all about parties. I called my sister who lived in San Francisco. You must have, this is like, everybody knows this. And I said, I was interested in moving up north. Did she know anybody that had a job opening? I was doing bookkeeping at at Scripps in the machine shop was nothing. I was doing, I was like an AP clerk. She worked for Tong and Fong then. Richard Tong was her boss and he was Francis Coppola and George Lucas's accountant. So he said George Lucas was looking for a bookkeeper. So I said, oh, I can do that. They called me up for an interview. I drove up to the LA offices in the Universal lot. George hardly said a word. Gary Kurtz interviewed me and I got hired. And I moved to Marin County, which I never even knew existed. What were your first responsibilities when you were there? Obviously, there's the like now storied you typing the first movie. What else did you do? And how did you kind of fit in with that early Lucasfilm culture and and team? Gary was there and Bunny was there. Michael Ritchie was renting offices there and Hal Barwood and Matt Robbins had offices there. I mean, hardly anybody was ever around. I was typing the script. Bunny handed that off to me right away. And then they were doing pre-production already. So there was, you know, bookkeeping. I had to call my sister all the time because I actually didn't know how to do any bookkeeping. And I got these big ledgers. I think they still have them because I did everything out by hand, you know, where you had to keep track of all the expenditures and petty cash. And 
So that was what I was doing. Obviously, the company gets a little bit bigger, or at least a little bit busier after the actual release of the movie. What were you kind of observing as as it kind of became more and more popular, the movie in itself, but then also as the company began to grow and prepare for the sequel and prepare for, for future movies? Well, I'll tell you a little anecdote first, because when I was still doing stuff, the studio mailed us our first royalty check. It was millions of dollars and we were banking. I would walk downtown to the San Anselmo's little dinky Wells Fargo bank and deposit, you know, petty cash money back and forth. And I came in with this multi-million dollar check and I had to keep telling the woman, add another zero. No, add another zero to that. that. And after that, you know, LA, once you started getting money like that, the LA offices took over all the big finance stuff. I kind of became relegated to not such interesting stuff at that point because they started just expanding the LA office like crazy. You start off as a bookkeeper and you progress through the company and then, you know, you, you're getting your MBA and you're you're then really a part of this company that is on the cutting edge of so many different things. And even after Star Wars and after Empire and then as... ILM and Lucas really get kind of rolling. How are you growing in your professional career? And, and what were you kind of learning from the people around you and also teaching the people around you? I went back to school and got yeah an MBA and I took a bunch of accounting classes and I loved doing finance. It is creative when you're figuring it out. But after you figure it out, it gets boring because you're then doing the same thing over and over again. But for a long time, it was, I had to learn all the distribution agreements, all the actor agreements, the Screen Actor Guild agreement, the union agreements. I was inventing database systems to track how much money we were owned. And, you know, I mean, with help, we always had great people there. So there was always tons to learn and do. I partly got the MBA. First, the company paid for it, which was great. Secondly, you know, movie Companies usually, they blow up all the time. They go bankrupt. They lay everybody off. I mean, I kept my entire life there. I, I always wondered if I was going to have a job in another year. You know, that also kind of motivates you to do your best work because you're terrified always of being fired. But I always really wanted to be in publishing. And normally you can never get out of finance to go into a creative position. I mean, that's not really how it works, but but I managed to do it. It was risky because what when I did it, the CFO then told me, you know, if this doesn't work out, Lucy, you're out of a job. But at that point, I think I'd learned everything about finance that I wanted to know. And I now I just wanted to do what I always wanted to do. So you did join first the just the licensing group with Howard Rothman, I believe. And then what was that like? But then pivoting from that to the larger publishing initiative, what was the process there? What was your initial thinking and, and your hope? And obviously, it was it was a huge success. Well, when he started that, the other whole group that was doing licensing, the whole department was let go, basically, because they were all just hoping George would make another movie. So nothing was happening at all. So we went over there and Howard decided we would get all these outside clients. So I did Grateful Dead comics. You probably didn't know that. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I, I licensed them. That was the only thing I managed to do. Other things just didn't. I mean, people don't normally own the rights where you, you know, you own it. I kept thinking, boy, here I'm sitting in a company where we own all these rights and we're not doing anything with the stuff that we own. And we're trying to do things for outside people for a third of the revenue and they half of them don't even own anything. And I started really wanting to 
do the publishing and Howard would let me do it. I started doing it with Anita Gross, who was the publisher after Carol Teitelman was Wakarska. I did some Indiana Jones stuff. Then I started just, I went to a book fair and I just walked the aisles up and down to see who was in publishing and who was doing what. I don't think he ever got enough credit. Byron Price was this New York guy who was doing, I think, books based on computer games or something. And I thought, oh, maybe they'll let me license him books based on our computer games. I met with him and he said, Lucy, I don't want to do that. I want to do Star Wars novels. And I thought, boy, I want to do Star Wars novels too. But of course, I was going to do it with somebody bigger than him. You know, I mean, if we do it. And at that point, Ballantyne kind of was so uninterested in the property. I would look around all the halls at all the publishers doing things that I thought, well, I would love to be doing business with this publisher or that publisher. And I was really attracted to Bantam. Their booth was amazing. They had a great marketing department back then. So I came back and I said, I want to do Star Wars publishing. And and Howard went and asked George if I could do it. And he said, yes, which was kind of amazing. I went through the old files for the old publishing and I found that letter from Lou Aronica where he'd written saying he was interested. And he was at Bantam. And I'd already thought Bantam would be a cool partner. I had to get out of our first negotiation with Valentine. Fortunately, I came out of accounting and I had done a lot of legal stuff before because, you know, you have to understand what your legal limitations are before you can do another deal. And I managed to get out of the Ballantine agreement and, you know, made the deal with Bantam. And it was, it was like amazing. The publishing initiative, especially early on, is, is so fascinating to look at now. And I still have such incredible ties to a lot of those early titles. And I'd love to maybe talk about that early process for you, obviously starting something from relative scratch, identifying time periods and topics and authors what was the initial parameters set? And then how did you go about making it all possible? Well, I'll give credit to somebody else. Michael Linton used to be at Disney. Then he became the CEO of Sony. And now he's the CEO somewhere else. When I knew I was going to start doing publishing, I cold called him up because I had known him. We used to do Disney records. And I only knew about them because I was in accounting. I used to like audit. The, all the companies. So I knew all of them from going out and auditing their books. And I said, we were going to start doing publishing. And would he help me? And he helped me identify, you know, I had this whole spreadsheet of how many books you should do at what price point for what target audience and how often should they come out so they don't cannibalize each other. And, you know, what the, I had huge calendars every year, like 12 months, and I would lay out everything. So that's what I did first was kind of like, what's the master plan? And then for the novels, I mean, we just in the beginning, just let the people write what they wanted. Once you told them what area of the universe they were in, and it started getting complicated really fast. My memory does not function when it comes to continuity, but I knew I wanted the program to have an internal continuity. So I had Sue Rostoni working for me. She would call up West End games guys everybody was running around checking to make sure you know like nobody was killing somebody off who somebody else was doing something with but we were letting the authors just kind of do what they wanted as long as it made sense 
And actually, I will tell you another kind of anecdote. One of the first things I licensed was that Dark Horse, you know, the Tom Beach and Cam Kennedy thing. Well, Marvel had the right and they were, I think, not paying Cam Kennedy. And I loved his artwork. He's brilliant. So I was so unhappy that they were just going to drop him off the project and put somebody else on. And I met Mike Richardson and Randy Spradley from Dark Horse Comics. They're brilliant. Somehow they were very much interested in taking the thing over. And Mike knew Cam. He said he could get Cam back on the project. So I got out of the Marvel deal and gave it to Dark Horse. But what Tom Beach, the story he wrote, You know, we were just kind of letting people do what they wanted then. He wrote his story. I didn't ask George anything. We published it. Later, George would run into me and he'd say, you know, Lucy, I would never clone the emperor. He doesn't get cloned. And I'm like, how am I supposed to know that if you don't want to be involved in what we're doing? And yet, if I do something you don't like. So I started then having to send him memos. You know, we're going to this person wants to do this, this, and this. Is this okay? Is that okay? I don't know if you watched the new movies, but in the most recent one, the Emperor was cloned. So Yeah, uh, by <laughs> rolling his eyes. <laughs> he probably he was, was not curious, happy at all. I think. The books start with the Thrawn trilogy and with Timothy Zahn. How did you identify him as a potential author and how did that grow? Because obviously that still has the staying power even now of being kind of a seminal Star Wars story and character. Well, Betsy Mitchell worked for Lou Veronica back then and she is really a good editor. When they got the license, she sent me three different authors as prospective writers for the new Star Wars novel. And I read them and Timothy Zahn's book just read like a Star Wars novel. It was as if he was writing Star Wars, his original stuff. So I picked him out of the three, you know, and then he could just kind of write what he wanted. Didn't he kill off his main character at the end of the third? See, I can't even remember that. Yes, Thrawn dies at the end yes, of the I third one. Yes, I think he did. What some of the authors would do is kill off their people so nobody else could do anything with them afterwards. But then here he is still. I think he wrote six more Thrawn books in the past, like, three years, so. Well, yeah, he did a really good job, so. That time was so effective in bringing in new generations and bringing in old generations of Star Wars fans, coupling that, of course, with the special editions and kind of a rebirth of Star Wars and and the zeitgeist. As more and more books came out, how much were you having to handle and do you have any specific anecdotes or memories from, from that time, especially as Star Wars became bigger and bigger again? Well, first it was Sue calling up West End Games. You know, then we had another editor, Alan Couch. They had better memories than me. And then... Then I suggested we find a group of outside people to read things so we would have, because they're all the Star Wars fans have these amazing memories and they could remember everything. So we got a group of people who would agree to read the novels while we were editing them for nothing and um, write, you know, what they thought about them and every continuity thing they found that was a problem. So we had this other group. I remember sitting at a San Diego comic convention talking to one of those guys. He was a lawyer in Los Angeles and he was a editor on the side, you know, one of these, one of our free editors. But after a while, that was going to be like, it was just getting too complicated. So I asked if I could please hire a continuity person, you know, because I wanted a database of all this stuff so that you could just look stuff up. So I got approval to do that and I hired Leland who turned out to be the perfect person. He's still there doing it. 
They call him the holocron, right? He's such a vast wealth of information, and it really did differentiate the Star Wars books at that time because you would read something and it would connect to a comic you had read earlier or a short story that you'd read in another place or a little piece in The Insider. And so it all felt so alive, and it was such a, a joy to to kind of dive into it. And during your, your tenure, I found a number like 1,500 total titles across books and music and comics and magazines. And are there any that stick out to you as being a favorite project or a challenge that you're especially like <laughs> uh, now looking back grateful that you kind of overcame you know when I went up and down the halls at the book fairs looking at publishers I always wanted to do business with a lot of them because I loved what they were doing and I ended up bringing a lot of people into the licensing publishing world who had never done it before. Dorling Kindersley I brought in Chronicle Books I brought in you know all these guys who traditionally had never done licensing before. Abrams. Well, with Darling Kindersley, here's another story. I met them at a Bologna book fair or something. I mean, you know, and I thought, God, they would be so perfect. And then I was looking online, thanks to Google, and I saw this kid, David West Reynolds, and I thought, wow, he would be perfect to be a writer of this Darling Kindersley book. So I put them together. And those are some of my favorite books, actually, because first of all, the guy that started that publishing company, Peter Kindersley, he kind of had this learning disability where it was hard to remember to read without having a picture. And he went to the British Museum where you pull out the drawers and you would see something with a little tag right next to it that said what it was. So he could read the word and then he would understand it better because he could see the picture. So he started this whole format. But I think it got a lot of boys, especially, or, you know, kids into reading. And that made me feel like what I was doing was actually of value, you know? Two initiatives that also stick out in my mind that I'd love to dig into, again, because they are so novel in, in certain senses. One is, of course, the Shows of the Empire, like multimedia experience. And I'd love to hear your side of that, because, again, that's one of my favorite parts of Star Wars. What was your experience having to coordinate so many elements um, that all kind of tied together? I forget how it even came up. But, you know, Howard was into it. He's the one kind of more because he was over at the whole licensing we'd sit there and bounce around ideas and then we we'd have these big story group meetings with the games people valentine editorial you know like everybody kind of like working through what we were going to do and then somehow i managed to make that deal with the soundtrack i even went to scotland when they were recording it of course i got in trouble for that later because john williams was really unhappy that i licensed someone else to do the music that was the last you know, I tried doing more stuff with music, but I got my hand slapped and I couldn't. But coordinating is, you know, not very much fun, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's fun. It's It was fun. Like the New Jedi Order thing was completely fabulous because it was just publishing. Once you throw games and other people into the mix, it becomes a lot more difficult because you have more people. But, and also everything I ever did with the games group those guys are brilliant and I love them, but our books would get done way before they finish their game and we'd have to sit around with our hands. You know, when can we publish? You can't publish yet because they're delayed or they're whatever. Talking about the New Jedi Order, what was the driving force there? Obviously, it was so different for even Star Wars publishing at the time. And then how did you assemble that group of authors? Because again, that that group is so talented in itself and telling that that 
pretty broad story. I remember at a book fair sitting around Kevin Anderson, who'd written some of the earlier books, and some of his friends, these other science fiction writers. I don't think any of the other guys had even written Star Wars. And I was kind of complaining that the Bantam books were getting... They weren't doing so well anymore. You know, they were each person was just writing their own thing. And it was like it was kind of the sales were going downhill and it wasn't so exciting anymore. And it needed it needed something major to happen to the program. So we're I'm sitting around and they said, Kevin said, oh, you know, there's other science fiction series where people come up with a multi story. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. We should do that. We're just going to be starting to do the licensing for the prequel movies. So I thought, I'm just going to hold on to this idea and make it part of the new deal. You know, whether we go with Bantam or Valentine or whatever ends up happening. I mean, there was it was a hairy negotiation, but Bantam also wasn't paying the author's royalties anymore. I wanted them to get paid royalties, and I wanted a really good science fiction editor now. Specifically, I wanted Shelley Shapiro, and she was at Ballantyne. So anyway, Ballantyne ended up getting the deal. Then we could all get together, because here now we had a brilliant science fiction editor. Now we had a concept for a multi-book thing where we could bring really great new blood into the series. And I wanted to kill somebody off because I really wanted a big impact thing. I wanted to kill off Luke and George wouldn't let me. The Dark Horse guys, especially Randy Stradley, were, I think, brilliant story guys. And then with Valentine, you know, you've got a new editor and you've got new blood and you've got new writers. That thing just took off. It was just it was great. It was a lot of fun. And at one of the meetings, I studied James Joyce's Ulysses when I was in college. And then I noticed that Cold Mountain, you know, there's lots of other books that kind of are retell that story. And I knew Coppola had done Apocalypse Now that was the same story as Heart of Darkness. So I thought I was always trying to turn Star Wars into real literature. So I said, well, can't we do, you know, a future of like a the Star Wars Ulysses story. But um, nobody nobody bit that one, but the closest it came to was Matthew Stover's Traitor book. Oh my gosh, incredible. incredible which was book. based on The Heart of Darkness, if you ask me. And so that was my favorite book because I felt like finally it was like a crossover liter literate Star Wars novel. Not that they weren't all. No, I love that. And, uh, Matthew Stover, uh, don't get me started on how incredible he is. That Traitor and the Revenge of the Sith novelization is are like in like incredible just books in general, not just incredible Star Wars books. Before we dive into George Lucas books and Jack films, I do want to just briefly bring up the focus that part of the publishing department had, which was real love and focus on like the making of the actual movies. There were the art of books, there were the making of books as the prequels went on, and then later with the Rinsler making of original trilogy books as well. What was that process like? Because it was really a, a replication of, of what had happened in, in the 80s with the original trilogy, but again, really kind of bolstered a lot of people's love of making the movies and telling really the, the stories of how these really complicated things were, were put together. We Those two, the art ofs and the making ofs, we just kept going with them from the original movies. We also added essential guidebooks that was a new format altogether, and then we kept that going. Those were expensive books for the publishers to do. So I remember Valentine, I think on the third movie, they 
were going to do one of them and they canceled it. Jonathan was brilliant at doing those books. He's one of my best hired. I'm so sad he died. He was such a great guy. He is like the inspiration for this podcast. He was the first person, I think, that said yes to coming on a few years ago. He really paved the way for a lot of the current landscape of behind the scenes. And, and obviously his stuff is unparalleled. Like no one, no one can match what he's able to do. And um, yeah, it was incredibly, incredibly sad. Yes, me too. He was a good friend of mine. I also did some nonfiction books, like The Creative Impulse with Abrams. And I, I managed to I meet Charles Champlin, became friends with him. He, he was he did a good job on those. It was kind of a fluke going over to Jack Films. I was getting bored. I had more new management. And they wanted me to start going down to Walmart and doing more, you know, all business, no creative, you know, adapting more computer games stories into books so no more freedom and I just kind of thought I need something else this is not going to make me happy so I had heard that you know that George was going to start doing little films and that maybe there would be spin-off stuff to that so I said well if that happened I'd be interested in it and all of a sudden I'm kind of booted out of licensing and into there for books that don't even exist because George didn't do any other movies George talks about doing these books on really interesting subjects about which I knew absolutely nothing. And when you do books like that, usually you have huge teams of experts with PhDs in those different doing all the research. And it was just me. It was so difficult. I ended up doing so much research. I had a huge database of every movie. And I, I found this guy in L.A., was a fluke who worked for one of the studios and he had his whole entire apartment was filled with boxes of P&Ls and all the movie records from every film the studios had done because they throw them all out. He took them all home. So I would go down there and sit in his apartment and say, this movie that came out in 1944, I need to know what the, you know, box office gross was and what the negative cost was. And he'd go look in a file because he had all that stuff. And I, that was for the blockbusting book. That took me a couple of years just to put that database of all that information together on all those movies. And then I ended up hiring about 20 people who I couldn't even hardly pay them anything at that point, you know, and met some really fabulous, some of the people working on that book. They knew everything about those movies. It was hard. And the Cause of Death book was also really hard, but it was actually was so interesting. It was one of my favorite things that I ever worked on once I finally... Again, I had to do a database of everything in the whole entire world. So now I know how the CDC tracks everything and the World Health Organization, and I synced up all their numbers. And I, I guess it's a pretty good thing to know now, right? That, that worked out for the past couple of years, to at least uh, be aware. Well, actually, it's super interesting. The blockbusting book, I feel like it does not get talked as much as it should because it's such a, a really incredible reference. It's, it's behind me. Really, when that came out, it was really, and I think that was part of George's intent, was like education a lot of films that maybe I hadn't heard of or films that were worth seeking out or how things were actually made beyond, again, a Star Wars scope or a, a general pop culture scope and all those Jack books and the cinema by the bay as well, all very fascinating and important elements and guides. For the blockbusting book, he really wanted to show how the movie industry has changed over time because it used to be run by people who understood movies and then it became run by 
you know, people getting out of business school who didn't know anything about running movies. And he wanted to show the progression of how much people spent making movies when the people in the studios didn't understand movies anymore, you know, so that all of a sudden movies were costing more and more and more money. There's no money left over to do any experimental films anymore because it's all above the line, just ate up everything. And it was more for him an exploration of movies that last. Why do they last? And what's happened to the movie industry that's kind of destroyed it? Because I mean, not destroyed it, but that meant that the people making the films don't even know anything about movies anymore. As more movies come out and as more things happen, as more all the companies become one company, it is very interesting, again, to go back to that time, to the 70s and 80s, when it was auteurs making movies. And the reason they were successful was because of people who loved storytelling and who loved the art and craft of actually making movies is really well documented not only in blockbusting but in so many of the publishing initiatives and on the cause of death thing the reason he wanted to do that also was because so many things you read in the paper are skewed for the story that they're trying to get across nothing is put into perspective so that you read a statistic out of context just for somebody to support their particular position and it's not even it's not even what reality is, you know, that was, that was bothering him too. And he wanted to show it. And, but then the thing, because it was based on death, it was really a very hard sell. I mean, but that book actually, it was really fascinating. I mean, I loved working on that when I finally realized I was going to have to do all the research. After Lucasfilm, going through your site and going through all of your stuff, the the art that you're producing now is so beautiful and so incredibly diverse in terms of mediums, in terms of what you're exploring what currently inspires you how can people see what you're doing because i think it's such a an incredible extension of everything we've talked about that's very nice of you i'm really terrible at marketing myself just like i never wanted to be out there you know in the public at all just behind the scenes kind of i'm just doing what i feel like doing the problem is i would like to be more successful and in what I'm doing and actually sell stuff. But I find, you know, people get pigeonholed when you do become successful and everybody wants you to do the same thing all the time. And I never want to do the same thing. I want to just, I always want to learn something new, you know, constantly. For me, it's mostly about experimentation and learning, figuring something new out. And, and also, you know, you learn something in another medium and you constantly are adding new talents and new ways of doing things. It's just, uh, I guess I'm just doing it for fun. I would like more people to even be aware that I'm doing it and like it because of course that's the nicest thing in the world, but I don't even know how to do that. I'll say listeners, the links to Mrs. Wilson's art and pages will be in the show notes. So you can easily go check that out for yourself because it is 100% worth the time. And, and Mrs. Wilson, thank you for taking the time and telling these stories. Hopefully I have not just stuttered too much the entire time, but I appreciate you taking this time and telling these stories. Again, it was such an honor to get to talk to Mrs. Wilson. Thank you so much again. To explore more of her current projects and gorgeous art, head to autryart.blogspot.com. The link is in the show notes. 
That's all for this week. Coming up soon are my already recorded interviews with Martin Rezard, Toby Longworth, Brian Muir, and many more. If right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show, it means a lot and really helps the show out. So until next week, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the force be with you. Thank you.